Welcome to Indie Reads Aloud, a storytelling podcast with your host, Diana Catherine Plopa. Come gather round, grab a snack, and listen to a story. Each week, we'll feature a new indie author with a story to tell. There are no long-winded interviews, no sales pitches, just stories. Most of the stories we'll tell will be family-friendly, but if they're not, you'll get fair warning before the reading begins. If you want to hear more, investigate the story notes for links to the author and where to buy their books. You can find us at dkpwriter.com. And now, sit back, relax, and listen to a story. Welcome back, everyone. This is another episode of Indie Reads Aloud. Today, a new-to-me author is going to be reading. His name is Eli Evans. He's all the way over in Washington State, and uh, I've never read his work before, so I'm pretty excited to hear a little bit of this historical fantasy he's written called Inside Every Circle. Welcome, Eli. Uh, Thank you for having me. Sure. I'm happy to have you. It's I, I say this on almost every podcast because um, I feel like I have to, but at the same time, I think there's some people out there who still don't believe me. I am still a recovering six-year-old. Um, I, I like it when people read out loud to me. So my whole purpose in doing the podcast is to let everybody else learn about you and learn about your work. But it's really quite self-indulgent because I just want to be the six-year-old sitting on the carpet listening to a story. So I'll read your story. <laughs> I love that. Um, for those of you like me who have not met Eli before, um, he is a composer, writer, software designer, and raconteur. Love the vocabulary in that. Uh, he studied music education at Eastern Washington University for a while, then left to pursue, pursue a career designing software. He writes music and novels too. He lives in Washington State with his wife, Olga, and their five children. You, sir, are a very brave man to have five children. Congratulations. Well, they're all grown, so it's okay. Yeah, well, still. They all made it. It, it, it requires <laughs> some amount of courageousness to do that. <laughs> um, your book, Inside Every Circle, is historical fantasy, um, bordering closer to the historical, um, spiritual, or supernatural can you tell us a little bit about what the story is about? Uh, yeah, uh, I could, if I were to say it in a nutshell, it's, uh, it's scholars uh, and sort of ancient scribes. Uh, time period is uh, late Bronze Age, early Iron Age. Uh, so, so before uh, the Common Era, time of Christ. Um, and uh, these, uh, the scholars sort of have to face down an invasion. And the tools that they have at their, at their disposal are things like interpreting old texts and uh, and dreams and visions and uh, uh, geometry actually is one of the things that uh, uh, and so you're wondering it's like how can you that's, uh, how can that's you... a curious thing that you found scribes that use math I, uh, I, I see them as mutually exclusive but I'm curious to see how you meld them well, in the ancient world, uh, the reason that people started writing as far as we know is to keep tax records so they were doing a lot of math. Oh, um, well, all right. Back in the old days. 
That's, uh, in fact, uh, that's a these... sad commentary on civilization. Well, yeah, it's probably very <laughs> practical. Let's say it that way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I love that you've written a story about scribes um, as a diehard writer myself. And obviously this is a, a podcast about books. I, I love books about books, books about writers, books about libraries there because I'm a word nerd. So I'm really excited to hear a little bit about this. So when you are ready, please, Eli, take the microphone and read aloud. Uh, I uh, absolutely will do that. Um, so I just want to preface this to set this up a little bit. Uh -huh. um, the the story is four sort of novellas all glued together uh, and they come together in the end. So I'm going to be reading the sort of the main storyline uh, uh, about uh, a young man named Atnan uh, who lives in a fishing village. And uh, he wants to be a scribe more than he actually is a scribe, but he kind of sees the world as symbols and signs and, and, and letters. Um, and uh, this is sort of just the beginning of, of his quest. Uh, so awesome. Ooh, quest. I like quests. Okay. Uh, when you're ready, sir, the microphone All is right. yours. Atnan made no sound as he slurped down a bowl of fish stew, slithered his way into sealskin trousers and boots, and slipped a grass poncho over his vest, careful not to wake his father and grandmother sleeping by the fire. Grandson, is that you? Atnan clapped his chest five times in a rhythm they both knew. Two beats and then three. A-T- N-A-N. His grandmother rolled over on her mat. What a wretched curiosity I am, he thought. Who ever heard of a scribe and a mute in one body, whose life is words and letters never uttered? At times he could produce a faint sound, a sigh, a grunt, even a rumbling growl when he was in distress. But somewhere between his innards and his lips, words always lost their way. Sometimes he imagined them wandering around inside him, hopelessly lost, as though we, he were a skin bag filled with unspeakable things. Taking his floppy sealskin hat on the way out, he tapped each arm of a dried starfish affixed to the side, reciting to himself the names of the five great spirits, Mem, Nan, Lom, Rish, Clear. Verity, Harmony, Dignity, Equity, Mystery. Outside, the frosty ground twinkled. He tipped his grandfather's little round boat away from the stone house, then tossed his nets and a paddle inside. It was small for a boat, but enormous for a turtle shell. He imagined the beast roiling the waters of the inlet, sucking down fish by the basketful. That was long before he was born. All that remained of them now were a few claw knives and shell boats like this one, and the sentimental stories of the elders. His father, Omric, waxed eloquent about the elder days whenever anyone would listen, but Atnan could muster no emotion for the loss of things he had never known. Boat slung over his back, he picked down the rocky path toward the shore. Through the mist, he identified the outline of a huge otter bear loitering near the water. Mahuthra Shen, he wondered. She ought to be off swimming in the river in the sky by now, but then winter has been mild. Bearing no offering, he approached with caution. Shen was benevolent, but no more predictable than the sea. Always been here, always will, the fisherman said. They called the nearby waters Shen's Inlet and thanked her daily for allowing them to stay. His grandmother told how every winter Shen joined the animal stewards of other locales to procure the blessings of the ancestors in exchange for news of the village. 
Facing Shen, his friend Barlas leaned on an ornate wooden boat. Despite the cold, he was barefooted and wore a vest with no sleeves. The otter bear towered over him with her head tilted, her bushy white brows curtaining her blunt, whiskered face. He tossed a fish in the air and she snagged it mid-flight. The lanky fisherman pivoted toward Atnan as he arrived. Oh there, inky fingers. Thought you gave up fishing, eh? Atnan shrugged. Shen flopped on her side, bulk supported by one massive oar-shaped paw while scratching her throat with the other. With a snort and a foggy snuffle, she rolled over, shook herself, and loped into the surf, ottering out of view. Trial's tomorrow, isn't it? You ready? Atnan touched fingertips to lips, then moved the same hand as though throwing something away, meaning there was nothing to say. His readiness hardly mattered. Atnan then gestured toward the sun, already high in the sky, then toward Barlas. Nah, you're the late one. I've been out and back twice already, eh? Small talk was something Atnan avoided in general, but fishing patter chafed the most. In his professional opinion, words were tools to be treated with respect, their proper functions preserved, their syntax left unmolested. Nor could he participate, which deepened his umbrage. Barlas tossed his last net into the boat. Hey, let's get fishing. Tomorrow don't come till tomorrow, eh? They cast off, each the pilot of an older man's boat, faithfully following in the paths of their ancestors. Yet no, many no matter how many times you paddle the same course, it never makes a path. Lines inscribed on water are always washed away. The next morning, Atnan skipped down the slope toward the beach ahead of his father and grandmother. He was ready. For what, he didn't know. Manhood? Citizenship? He waited at the top of a steep staircase leading to the beach. Further down, Barless bounded up the stairs, two at a time, hooping and waving his hands. Once at the top, he pelted Atnan with questions. Which trial, eh? Rish'll mean fire. I don't think so. Nan's a high hill. Lom's the wilderness. Might work. Mem'd be a heavy stone. He squeezed Atnan's forearm. Not with these kelpy little arms. How about Fleer? Barless wagged his thumb, the only digit left. Atnan made a sour face. Nah, you'd get your socks wet. Barless shrugged and turned back up the hill. Better luck next year, eh? Oh, leave him be, Animus said. His grandmother. Barla sidestepped and offered her his arm. She slapped his hands away, but he insisted, and the four of them descended. Near the tide line, the entire village was already assembled on a circular patio. Knots of adults milled about, deep in conversation, dressed for a party. Men and boys in their best knee pants and moccasins, women and girls in their best skirts. Vests and cloaks displayed bright zigzags, diamonds, stripes, animals, and flowers. Children darted between their legs and ran circles around the patio. Atnan, dressed in a plain tunic for his trial, made a funny face at a little girl as she ran past. She giggled, returned the favor, and continued on her frolic. The men of the village made a particular show of cradling their oars, hands curled around the knob ends, shafts rested against elbow and shoulder, blades aloft overhead. Atnan glanced over at his grandmother to make sure she was still carrying his. Once they arrived, the elders cast sweet grass and blessed the assembly. The drummers started up a slow rhythm as everyone sang, 
and Atnan played on his flute. O Mem, strong as a stone. O Nan, sweet like the wind. O Lom, a well-worn path. O Rish, cloaked with fire. O clear, as deep as the sea. Laram, the oldest of the village elders, stood in the patio's center, long sweetgrass pipe bobbing from the corner of his mouth and leaning on his oar as though it were his only good leg. Er Atnan, son of Er Omric, approach. The long white forks of his beard waggled when he talked. He tapped the butt of his oar on the stone and the villagers joined in. Atnan sucked in a deep breath of the salty air and stepped forward. Which of the five chooses you? The old man shook a small bag at him. Eyes clenched, Atnan selected a stone and handed it to Laram. The old man read out the rune painted on it. Clear! Barlas was grinning like a porpoise. Atnan glared back. Laram intoned, Ea Atnan, son of Ea Omric, you will take nothing but your oar. Every trial began that way. You will choose an island, and there you will offer the prayers of Lear, meditating for a day and a night without ceasing. The old man's eyes widened as round as they would go, piling wrinkles on his forehead like the waves of a stormy sea. You will be guided to a token. On the morning of the next day, you will return and present it to the elders, along with your oaths, and then the dark day feast. Everyone cheered, and Laram called. He who survives is called a man. The villagers responded, the names of the dead are soon forgotten. These were sacred words from the oldest of the Therian clan songs. Atnan had read and copied them many times, always with due reverence, but they had never been quite so forceful to him. Atnan's father clapped him on the shoulders with both hands. Clear, highly favored, I'd say. Atnan exchanged a worried look with his grandmother. She started to say something, but was interrupted by drums and chanting. Ready or not, the trial had commenced. She escorted him to the waterline. As his closest female relative, the honor of sending him off on his trial fell to her. Turtle shell bowed at his feet. He stared off over the water. He couldn't see the islands. Fog will burn off in a couple hours, Animus said. There should have been more important things for her to say to him than discussing the weather. But what? Behind him, the village, security. Ahead, the sea, the fog. The future, a threshold? No, a precipice. This would be better on both of us if your mother was here instead. She was right handy with words. Regarding his mother, Atnan had to trust those who knew her. He felt her absence, but not her loss. My heart knows I'm not a mother to you, she sniffled. But what my heart knows, my bones forgot a long time ago. She wiped a tear away with her sleeve as Atnan stepped toward her. He traced her arms from shoulder to wrist, then pointed both hands at her heart, then away, fluttering off like birds. Then he touched his own arms and waved them negatively. I know, she said, I know. He wasn't sure she did. He thought, what your bones forgot, mine never knew. She handed him a strand of cowrie shells. I made this for your mother. He brushed the shells with his fingertips. They were inscribed, loose and crooked. Definitely his grandmother's scratching. 
Mina, Flo, Rila, always love together. A motto of five, she said, sniffling. Nobody does it anymore, not for a long time. She helped him tie it around his neck. Let the five guide you, and my love, and your mother's, warm you always. She swept a lock of his hair behind his ear, and he shuddered from the lightness of her touch. He pointed at the chalky white blanket hanging over the water. You're right, it's time to get going, she sniffled again. Song will make us both feel better, don't you think? She sang in her low gravelly voice while he played high harmony, pure open intervals that gave the music an appropriate melancholy. Mystery, spread your wings and keep me under your shadow. Guide my feet from dry to dry, away and yawn and home again. The sea is dark and full of eyes. I am a wandering stranger there. Mystery, spread your wings and keep me under your shadow. She traded him his oar for the flute and helped him cast off while the villagers stopped drumming and let out a long hoop, waving hands and shocks of sea reeds. Atnan looked back one last time, then paddled into the fog, hugging the shore as long as possible. Once around the point, he put land at his back and headed for the snaggled jawline of islands just offshore, Shen's teeth. He had <clears throat> been that way plenty of times before in clear weather. Up, down, paddle, splash. Up, down, paddle, splash. Unease welled up in his belly. The sea was alive, but devoid of reason, not malevolent, but insensible. See, don't know you, see, don't care, as Ea Natan, his father's father, had always put it. His sense of foreboding grew with every stroke. Have I gone far enough, he wondered, or too far? Curse this fog, I can't even tell where the sun is, let alone myself. After a while, he stopped paddling and let the boat bob in the waves. Maybe it was malevolent. Just then, something splashed, rocking the boat, followed by a loud snuffle. He yelped and twi twisted around. Shen! Trilling, the giant otter bear dove under the boat and surfaced on the other side. She paddled a lazy circuit around him, cradling a shock of oysters. With a single bite, she cracked one open, slurped down the contents, and flipped the shell away with her tongue. Atnan dragged his fingertips in the water, and Shen huffed and glided under his touch. His face contorted into a shape that he hoped meant, I'm utterly lost. At this, she somersaulted and swam away on a tangent. Paddling as hard as he could, he followed, falling ever behind until she finally disappeared, alone again. Nevertheless, she had given him a heading, and that was something. After a while, the fog broke, and with it his spirits. A quick scan of the horizon revealed nothing but gray sky and gray water, once, twice, three times around. Near panic, he spotted a tiny speck off in the distance. As he approached the speck, it grew into a tiny island in the form of an enormous petrified stump. With some difficulty, he was able to land between two root-like reefs. Heaving the boat ashore, he clambered up to a flat shelf just above the waterline. To the left, there was only sheer rock and pounding surf. To the right, the shelf continued up around the trunk-like central spire until it became a set of stairs hewn from the rock. Concerned the island might be occupied, he banged two rocks together as loud as he could. The only answer was the echo glinting off the rocks. He ascended the narrow staircase, sea roiling below, nothing to catch him if he fell. 49 steps later, he arrived at a split in the rock about halfway to the peak. He squeezed through the crack into a domed cave almost tall enough to stand in. Rays of sunlight shone in through the entrance, illuminating more ruddy symbols daubed on the walls. 
Kneeling in the sand of the cave floor, he tried to read them but couldn't. He pushed some sand away to reveal a line of hash marks scratched on the wall. Whoever was here last was marking time, a long time. The light from the entrance began to fade. After a quick survey, he found the cave clean, dry, and long enough to stretch out in. Scattered about, he found a few shards of pottery, scraps of cloth, and a small pile of bat bones. Any of these could be a token. All he had to do was explain why it was meaningful. At the far end of the cave, he bumped something hard. Plowing sand away, he uncovered a small clay urn stoppered with wax that was blackened with age. After more digging, he uncovered three more. They were smooth and unmarked. What's inside? Some old wine, fragrant oils, a treasure. Regardless, it would make a better token than bat bones. He found a stone and bashed the neck off of one of the urns. The thought that whatever was inside might be spoiled or dangerous occurred to him too late. If it was a mistake, it was already made. Scrolls packed, scrolls packed the interior of the urn, most no bigger around than his thumb. He extracted one and unrolled it to reveal tight hedgerows of pictograms he couldn't read. Maybe I am highly favored after all. Thank you very much. Wow, this is super cool. I love the world that you've built here. What was your inspiration for creating the culture that I feel is emerging here? What what is what got you started on that? Uh, well, probably one of several, right? So um, uh, Western uh, ashore type uh, cultures, uh, they have some commonalities. So like, you know, uh, the turtle shell boat, that mm -hmm. uh, that Atnan rides in, uh, it's you know a turtle for the fantasy element, but it's not unlike an Irish coracle, for example, a little reed boat that that's woven. Uh, the ornate boat uh, might be you know sort of like Pacific Northwest uh, canoes. Uh, some of the of the sort of back and forth with the with the elders and whatnot might evoke you know Turkey or Spain or or you know Western sure. Northwest or, you yeah. know so it's it's really sort of a what I actually do is um, I have a, a real hard time imagining things visually. So I just go to Pinterest and I like collect lots and lots and lots of mood boards for places. <laughs> That's great. And so, uh, you know, like these, these, uh, these islands, these Shen's Teeth uh, islands are very, very much like the Oregon coast, for example. There's these kind of rocky. Sure. Yeah. Very cool. Well, um, I wouldn't say that's exactly where they are. <laughs> well, right, right, because this is a completely different this is world really, yeah. in a completely different time. It's in your head um, yeah. and soon to be the reader's head when they pick up your book. Uh, so. the, the other thing that I'm really curious about is that there are few novels that feature a mute as a main character. So I'm really <laughs> curious about two things. The first okay. is... What inspired you to make a main character that was mute? And then the second thing is, how difficult was it to make them not speak? Um, so that's uh, that's two questions. Um, the When I wrote the first draft, or probably the third draft, actually, by the time it was all said and done, he did actually speak. But when I went through it, I kind of realized he didn't actually talk that much. He was mostly an up in his head kind of guy. Okay. Uh, and since he's sort of, you know, he likes to interpret signs and symbols and he sees them everywhere. Um, you know, that's, he's sort of a little, you know, stay alone and be up in his head kind of guy. Uh, what inspired me to go ahead all the way to, uh, to mutism is uh, my youngest son is autistic. 
Uh, And he doesn't talk very often. He does talk. He really only talks when he has something to say. He just doesn't very often have anything to say. Uh, So I have a little bit of, you know, experience with sort of dealing with someone who who doesn't really speak. Sure. Finding a different communication connection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so you notice that uh, that Atnan kind of has his own sort of made up sign language that that he uses to communicate. And the people who are close to him kind of know what he's talking about. Now, later on in the story, he's going to have some real difficulties uh, when he sure. has to uh, communicate with people who don't know him. Right, right. Yeah, that that was just a, a really intriguing piece of your storytelling. It was, okay, we've just started this adventure. What happens when he meets strangers who don't know? There are some fairly comical scenes actually later in the book where there's you know groups of five people where they're debating and he's actually translating for some people that don't speak the imperial language and they don't speak the village language and and you know he's the only one who really has all the parts but he has the hardest time communicating and so a a lot of the book is actually about how hard it is to communicate sure how hard it is to see things and and to extract meaning from them and then communicate that meaning to others Maybe it's because I took so long to write this book. Uh, that's, um, but that's such a cool idea. I mean, I just love that you've taken on that concept and translated it to the page. I think that's a really cool thing. Um, do you have anything coming out next? Are you going to tackle another book or is there another book in process? Uh, I am working on several things, so I don't I don't have a good clear plan. I do have sort of a sequel in mind for this one, but I haven't really okay. started uh, outlining that. Um, oh, by the way. There's, there it is. It's a real there book. It is. It, yeah. It, it's pretty thick too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I painted this cover too. Uh, oh, very it. nice. Very nice. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm continuing to write. Uh, uh, not sure what my next project's going to be, but uh, we'll see. Okay. Awesome. So when you finish the next project, you let me know and we'll have you back on the program to read again. Awesome. This is a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Eli. I'm so glad you were here with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Sure. And thank you for doing this. Yo, you're so welcome. Thank you for listening to Indie Reads Aloud Radio. We hope you'll join us again next week for another story. If you're an indie author and you'd like to share your story with us, visit our website at dkpwriter.com to sign up and read aloud.